Chapter 3 Dodging Bullets Fear Setting and Escaping Paralysis Many a false step was made by standing still. Fortune Cookie Named must your fear be before banish it you can. Yoda from Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back Rio de Janeiro, Brazil Twenty feet and closing. Run! Run! Hans didn't speak Portuguese, but the meaning was clear enough. Haul ass! His sneakers gripped firmly on the jagged rock, and he drove his chest forward toward three thousand feet of nothing. He held his breath on the final step, and the panic drove him to near unconsciousness. His vision blurred at the edges, closing to a single pinpoint of light, and then... he floated. The all-consuming celestial blue of the horizon hit his visual field an instant after he realized that the thermal updraft had caught him and the wings of the paraglider. Fear was behind him on the mountaintop, and thousands of feet above the resplendent green rainforest and pristine white beaches of Copacabana, Hans Keeling had seen the light. That was Sunday. On Monday, Hans returned to his law office in Century City, Los Angeles's posh corporate haven, and promptly handed in his three-week notice. For nearly five years he had faced his alarm clock with the same dread. I have to do this for another forty to forty-five years? He had once slept under his desk at the office after a punishing half-done project, only to wake up and continue on it the next morning. That same morning he had made himself a promise. Two more times, and I'm out of here. Strike number three came the day before he left for his Brazilian vacation. We all make these promises to ourselves, and Hans had done it before as well, but things were now somehow different. He was different. He had realized something while arcing in slow circles toward the earth. Risks weren't that scary once you took them. His colleagues told him what he expected to hear. He was throwing it all away. He was an attorney on his way to the top. What the hell did he want? Hans didn't know exactly what he wanted, but he had tasted it. On the other hand, he did know what bored him to tears, and he was done with it. No more passing days as the living dead. No more dinners where his colleagues compared cars, riding on the sugar high of a new BMW purchase until someone bought a more expensive Mercedes. It was over. Immediately a strange shift began. Hans felt, for the first time in a long time, at peace with himself and what he was doing. He had always been terrified of plane turbulence, as if he might die with the best inside of him, but now he could fly through a violent storm, sleeping like a baby. Strange indeed. More than a year later he was still getting unsolicited job offers from law firms, but by then had started Nexus Surf, a premier surf adventure company based in the tropical paradise of Florianopolis, Brazil. He had met his dream girl, a carioca with caramel-colored skin named Tatiana, and spent most of his time relaxing under palm trees or treating clients to the best times of their lives. Is this what he had been so afraid of? These days he often sees his former self in the underjoyed and overworked professionals he takes out on the waves. Waiting for the swell, the true emotions come out. God, I wish I could do what you do. His reply is always the same. You can. 
The setting sun reflects off the surface of the water, providing a zen-like setting for a message he knows is true. It's not giving up to put your current path on indefinite pause. He could pick up his law career exactly where he left off if he wanted to, but that is the furthest thing from his mind. As they paddle back to shore after an awesome session, his clients get a hold of themselves and regain their composure. They set foot on shore, and reality sinks its fangs in. I would, but I can't really throw it all away. He has to laugh. The Power of Pessimism Defining the Nightmare Action may not always bring happiness, but there is no happiness without action. Benjamin Disraeli, former British Prime Minister To do or not to do, to try or not to try. Most people will vote no, whether they consider themselves brave or not. Uncertainty and the prospect of failure can be very scary noises in the shadows. Most people will choose unhappiness over uncertainty. For years I set goals, made resolutions to change direction, and nothing came of either. I was just as insecure and scared as the rest of the world. The simple solution came to me accidentally four years ago. At that time I had more money than I knew what to do with. I was making seventy thousand or so per month, and I was completely miserable, worse than ever. I had no time and was working myself to death. I had started my own company only to realize it would be nearly impossible to sell. Oops. I felt trapped and stupid at the same time. I should be able to figure this out, I thought. Why am I such an idiot? Why can't I make this work? Buckle up and stop being such a insert expletive. What's wrong with me? The truth was nothing was wrong with me. I hadn't reached my limit. I'd reached the limit of my business model at the time. It wasn't the driver. It was the vehicle. Critical mistakes in its infancy would never let me sell it. I could hire magic elves and connect my brain to a supercomputer. It didn't matter. My little baby had some serious birth defects. The question then became, how do I free myself from this Frankenstein while making it self-sustaining? How do I pry myself from the tentacles of workaholism and the fear that it would fall to pieces without my fifteen-hour days? How do I escape this self-made prison? A trip, I decided. A sabbatical year around the world. So I took the trip, right? Well, I'll get to that. First, I felt it prudent to dance around with my shame, embarrassment, and anger for six months, all the while playing an endless loop of reasons why my cop-out fantasy trip could never work, one of my more productive periods, for sure. Then, one day, in my bliss of envisioning how bad my future suffering would be, I hit upon a gem of an idea. It was surely a highlight of my don't-happy-be-worry phase. Why don't I decide exactly what my nightmare would be, the worst thing that could possibly happen as a result of my trip? Well, my business could fail while I'm overseas, for sure. Probably would. A legal warning letter would accidentally not get forwarded and I would get sued. My business would be shut down and inventory would spoil on the shelves while I'm picking my toes in solitary misery on some cold shore in Ireland. Crying in the rain, I imagine. My bank account would crater by eighty percent, and certainly my car and motorcycle in storage would be stolen. I suppose someone would probably spit on my head from a high-rise balcony. 
while I'm feeding food scraps to a stray dog, which would then spook and bite me squarely on the face. God, life is a cruel, hard bitch. Conquering fear equals defining fear. Set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare, with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself the while, Is this the condition that I feared? Seneca Then a funny thing happened. In my undying quest to make myself miserable, I accidentally began to backpedal. As soon as I cut through the vague unease and ambiguous anxiety by defining my nightmare, the worst-case scenario, I wasn't as worried about taking a trip. Suddenly I started thinking of simple steps I could take to salvage my remaining resources and get back on track if all hell struck at once. I could always take a temporary bartending job to pay the rent if I had to. I could sell some furniture and cut back on eating out. I could steal lunch money from the kindergartners who pass by my apartment every morning. The options were many. I realized it wouldn't be that hard to get back to where I was, let alone survive. None of these things would be fatal, not even close. Mere panty pinches on the journey of life. I realized that on a scale of one to ten, one being nothing and ten being permanently life-changing, my so-called worst-case scenario might have a temporary impact of three or four. I believe this is true of most people, and most would-be, holy shit, my life is over, disasters. Keep in mind that this is the one-in-a-million disaster nightmare. On the other hand, if I realized my best-case scenario, or even a probable-case scenario, it would easily have a permanent nine or ten positive life-changing effect. In other words, I was risking an unlikely and temporary three or four for a probable and permanent nine or ten, and I could easily recover my baseline workaholic prison with a bit of extra work if I wanted to. This all equated to a significant realization. There was practically no risk, only huge, life-changing upside potential, and I could resume my previous course without any more effort than I was already putting forth. That is when I made the decision to take the trip and bought a one-way ticket to Europe. I started planning my adventures and eliminating my physical and psychological baggage. None of my disasters came to pass, and my life has been a near fairy tale since. The business did better than ever, and I practically forgot about it as it financed my travels around the world in style for fifteen months. Uncovering Fear Disguised as Optimism there's no difference between a pessimist who says, oh, it's hopeless, so don't bother doing anything, and an optimist who says, don't bother doing anything, it's going to turn out fine anyway. Either way, nothing happens. Yvonne Chouinard, founder of Patagonia. Fear comes in many forms, and we usually don't call it by its four-letter name. Fear itself is quite fear-inducing. Most intelligent people in the world dress it up as something else, optimistic denial. Most who avoid quitting their jobs entertain the thought that their course will improve with time or increases in income. This seems valid and is a tempting hallucination when a job is boring or uninspiring instead of pure hell. Pure hell forces action, but anything less can be endured with enough clever rationalization. Do you really think it will improve, or is it wishful thinking and an excuse for inaction? If you were confident in improvement, would you really be questioning things so? Generally not.
This is fear of the unknown disguised as optimism. Are you better off than you were one year ago, one month ago, or one week ago? If not, things will not improve by themselves. If you are kidding yourself, it is time to stop and plan for a jump. Barring any James Dean ending, your life is going to be long. Nine to five for your working lifetime of forty to fifty years is a long-ass time if the rescue doesn't come. About five hundred months of solid work. How many do you have to go? It's probably time to cut your losses. Someone call the Mater D. You have comfort. You don't have luxury. And don't tell me that money plays a part. The luxury I advocate has nothing to do with money. It cannot be bought. It is the reward of those who have no fear of discomfort. Jean Cocteau, French poet, novelist, boxing manager, and filmmaker, whose collaborations were the inspiration for the term surrealism. Sometimes timing is perfect. There are hundreds of cars circling a parking lot, and someone pulls out of a spot ten feet from the entrance, just as you reach his or her bumper. Another Christmas miracle. Other times the timing could be better. The phone rings during sex and seems to ring for a half hour. The UPS guy shows up ten minutes later. Bad timing can spoil the fun. Jean-Marc Hachet landed in West Africa as a volunteer with high hopes of lending a helping hand. In that sense, his timing was great. He arrived in Ghana in the early 1980s in the middle of a coup d'état, at the peak of hyperinflation, and just in time for the worst drought in a decade. For these same reasons, some people would consider his timing quite poor from a more selfish survival standpoint. He had also missed the memo. The national menu had changed, and they were out of luxuries like bread and clean water. He would be surviving for four months on a slush-like concoction of cornmeal and spinach, not what most of us would order at the movie theater. Wow, I can survive. Jean-Marc had passed the point of no return, but it didn't matter. After two weeks of adjusting to the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mush a la Ghana, he had no desire to escape. The most basic of foods and good friends proved to be the only real necessities, and what would seem like a disaster from the outside was the most life-affirming epiphany he'd ever experienced. The worst really wasn't that bad. To enjoy life, you don't need fancy nonsense, but you do need to control your time and realize that most things just aren't as serious as you make them out to be. Now, 48, Jean-Marc lives in a nice home in Ontario, but could live without it. He has cash, but could fall into poverty tomorrow, and it wouldn't matter. Some of his fondest memories still include nothing but friends and gruel. He is dedicated to creating special moments for himself and his family, and is utterly unconcerned with retirement. He's already lived twenty years of partial retirement in perfect health. Don't save it all for the end. There is every reason not to. Q&A Questions and Actions I am an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Mark Twain If you are nervous about making the jump, or simply putting it off out of fear of the unknown, here is your antidote. Write down your answers, and keep in mind that thinking a lot will not prove as fruitful or as prolific as simply brain-vomiting on the page. Write and do not edit. Aim for volume. Spend a few minutes on each answer.
1. Define your nightmare, the absolute worst that could happen if you did what you are considering. What doubts, fears, and what ifs pop up as you consider the big changes you can or need to make? Envision them in painstaking detail. Would it be the end of your life? What would be the permanent impact, if any, on a scale of 1 to 10? Are these things really permanent? How likely do you think it is that they would actually happen? 2. What steps could you take to repair the damage or get things back on the upswing, even if temporarily? Chances are it's easier than you imagine. How could you get things back under control? 3. What are the outcomes or benefits, both temporary and permanent, of more probable scenarios? Now that you've defined the nightmare, what are the more probable or definite positive outcomes, whether internal, confidence, self-esteem, etc., or external? What would the impact of these more likely outcomes be on a scale of 1 to 10? How likely is it that you could produce at least a moderately good outcome? Have less intelligent people done this before and pulled it off? 4. If you were fired from your job today, what would you do to get things under financial control? Imagine this scenario and run through questions 1 through 3 above. If you quit your job to test other options, how could you later get back on the same career track if you absolutely had to? 5. What are you putting off out of fear? Usually, what we most fear doing is what we most need to do. That phone call, that conversation, whatever the action might be, it is fear of unknown outcomes that prevents us from doing what we need to do. Define the worst case, accept it, and do it. I'll repeat something you might consider tattooing on your forehead. What we fear doing most is usually what we most need to do. As I have heard said, a person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. Resolve to do one thing every day that you fear. I got into this habit by attempting to contact celebrities and famous business people for advice. 6. What is it costing you, financially, emotionally, and physically, to postpone action? Don't only evaluate the potential downside of action, it is equally important to measure the atrocious cost of inaction. If you don't pursue those things that excite you, where will you be in one year, five years, and ten years? How will you feel having allowed circumstance to impose itself upon you and having allowed ten more years of your finite life to pass doing what you know will not fulfill you? If you telescope out ten years and know with 100% certainty that it is a path of disappointment and regret, and if we define risk as the likelihood of an irreversible negative outcome, inaction is the greatest risk of all. 7. What are you waiting for? If you cannot answer this without resorting to the previously rejected concept of good timing, the answer is simple. You're afraid, just like the rest of the world. Measure the cost of inaction, realize the unlikelihood and repairability of most missteps, and develop the most important habit of those who excel and enjoy doing so. Action. This book is continued on Disc 2. The 4-Hour Workweek
Escape the 9 to 5, Live Anywhere, and Join the New Rich by Timothy Ferris. Continued. Disc 2. Chapter 4. System Reset. Being Unreasonable and Unambiguous. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. George Bernard Shaw, Maxims for Revolutionists Spring, 2005, Princeton, New Jersey I had to bribe them. What other choice did I have? They formed a circle around me, and while the names differed, the question was one and the same. What's the challenge? All eyes were on me. My lecture at Princeton University had just ended with excitement and enthusiasm. At the same time, I knew that most students would go out and promptly do the opposite of what I preached. Most of them would be putting in eighty-hour weeks as high-paid coffee-fetchers unless I showed that the principles from class could actually be applied. Hence, the challenge. I was offering a round-trip ticket anywhere in the world to anyone who could complete an undefined challenge in the most impressive fashion possible. Results plus style. I told them to meet me after class if interested, and here they were nearly twenty out of sixty students. The task was designed to test their comfort zones while forcing them to use some of the tactics I teach. It was simplicity itself. Contact three seemingly impossible-to-reach people, J. Lo, Bill Clinton, J.D. Salinger, I don't care, and get at least one to reply to three questions. Of twenty students all frothing at the mouth to win a free spin across the globe, how many completed the challenge? Exactly None. Not a one. There were many excuses. It's not that easy to get someone to. I have a big paper due, and... I would love to, but there's no way I can. There was but one real reason, however, repeated over and over again in different words. It was a difficult challenge, perhaps impossible, and the other students would outdo them. Since all of them overestimated the competition, no one even showed up. According to the rules I had set, if someone had sent me no more than an illegible one-paragraph response, I would have been obligated to give them the prize. This result both fascinated and depressed me. The following year, the outcome was quite different. I told the above cautionary tale, and six out of seventeen finished the challenge in less than forty-eight hours. Was the second class better? No. In fact, there were more capable students in the first class, but they did nothing. Firepower up the wazoo and no trigger finger. The second group just embraced what I told them before they started, which was... Step 1. D is for definition. Doing the unrealistic is easier than doing the realistic. From contacting billionaires to rubbing elbows with celebrities, the second group of students did both. It's as easy as believing it can be done. It's lonely at the top. Ninety-nine percent of people in the world are convinced they are incapable of achieving great things, so they aim for the mediocre. The level of competition is thus fiercest for 
realistic goals, paradoxically making them the most time and energy consuming. It is easier to raise $10 million than it is $1 million. It is easier to pick up the one perfect 10 in the bar than the five eights. If you are insecure, guess what? The rest of the world is too. Do not overestimate the competition and underestimate yourself. You are better than you think. Unreasonable and unrealistic goals are easier to achieve for yet another reason. Having an unusually large goal is an adrenaline infusion that provides the endurance to overcome the inevitable trials and tribulations that go along with any goal. Realistic goals, goals restricted to the average ambition level, are uninspiring and will only fuel you through the first or second problem, at which point you throw in the towel. If the potential payoff is mediocre or average, so is your effort. I'll run through walls to get a catamaran trip through the Greek islands, but I might not change my brand of cereal for a weekend trip through Columbus, Ohio. If I choose the latter because it is realistic, I won't have the enthusiasm to jump even the smallest hurdle to accomplish it. With beautiful, crystal-clear Greek waters and delicious wine on the brain, I'm prepared to do battle for a dream that is worth dreaming, even though their difficulty of achievement on a scale of 1 to 10 appears to be a 10 and a 2, respectively, Columbus is more likely to fall through. The fishing is best where the fewest go, and the collective insecurity of the world makes it easy for people to hit home runs while everyone else is aiming for base hits. There is just less competition for bigger goals. Doing big things begins with asking for them properly. What do you want? A better question, first of all. Most people will never know what they want. I don't know what I want. If you ask me what I want to do in the next five months for language learning, on the other hand, I do know. It's a matter of specificity. What do you want is too imprecise to produce a meaningful and actionable answer. Forget about it. What are your goals is similarly fated for confusion and guesswork. To rephrase the question, we need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Let's assume we have ten goals and we achieve them. What is the desired outcome that makes all the effort worthwhile? The most common response is what I also would have suggested five years ago. Happiness. I no longer believe this is a good answer. Happiness can be bought with a bottle of wine and has become ambiguous through overuse. There is a more precise alternative that reflects what I believe the actual objective is. Bear with me. What is the opposite of happiness? Sadness? No. Just as love and hate are two sides of the same coin, so are happiness and sadness. Crying out of happiness is a perfect illustration of this. The opposite of love is indifference, and the opposite of happiness is, here's the clincher, boredom. Excitement is the more practical synonym for happiness, and it is precisely what you should strive to chase. It is the cure-all. When people suggest you follow your passion or your bliss, I propose that they are in fact referring to the same singular concept, excitement. This brings us full circle. The question you should be asking isn't, what do I want or what are my goals, but what would excite me? Adult Onset ADD, Adventure Deficit Disorder Somewhere between college graduation and your second job, a chorus enters your internal dialogue. Be realistic and stop pretending. Life isn't like the movies.
If you're five years old and say you want to be an astronaut, your parents tell you that you can be anything you want to be. It's harmless, like telling a child that Santa Claus exists. If you're 25 and announce you want to start a new circus, the response is different. Be realistic. Become a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor. Have babies and raise them to repeat the cycle. If you do manage to ignore the doubters and start your own business, for example, ADD doesn't disappear. It just takes a different form. When I started Brain Quicken LLC in 2001, it was with a clear goal in mind. Make $1,000 per day whether I was banging my head on a laptop or cutting my toenails on the beach. It was to be an automated source of cash flow. If you look at my chronology, it is obvious that this didn't happen until a meltdown forced it, despite the requisite income. Why? The goal wasn't specific enough. I hadn't defined alternate activities that would replace the initial workload. Therefore, I just continued working, even though there was no financial need. I needed to feel productive and had no other vehicles. This is how most people work until death. I'll just work until I have X dollars and then do what I want. If you don't define the what I want alternate activities, the X figure will increase indefinitely to avoid the fear-inducing uncertainty of this void. This is when both employees and entrepreneurs become fat men in red BMWs. The Fat Man in the Red BMW Convertible There have been several points in my life, among them just before I was fired from True San and just before I escaped the United States to avoid taking an Uzi into McDonald's, at which I saw my future as another fat man in a midlife crisis BMW. I simply looked at those who were 15 to 20 years ahead of me on the same track, whether a director of sales or an entrepreneur in the same industry, and it scared the hell out of me. It was such an acute phobia, and such a perfect metaphor for the sum of all fears, that it became a pattern interrupt between myself and fellow lifestyle designer and entrepreneur Douglas Price. Doug and I traveled parallel paths for nearly five years, facing the same challenges and self-doubts, and thus keeping a close psychological eye on each other. Our down periods seemed to alternate, making us a good team. Whenever one of us began to set our sights lower, lose faith, or accept reality, the other would chime in via phone or email like an AA sponsor. Dude, are you turning into the bald fat man in the red BMW convertible? The prospect was terrifying enough that we always got our asses and priorities back on track immediately. The worst that could happen wasn't crashing and burning. It was accepting terminal boredom as a tolerable status quo. Remember, boredom is the enemy, not some abstract failure. Correcting Course Get Unrealistic there is a process that I have used, and still use, to reignite life or correct course when the fat man in the BMW rears his ugly head. In some form or another, it is the same process used by the most impressive NR I have met around the world. Dreamlining. Dreamlining is so named because it applies timelines to what most would consider dreams. It is much like goal setting but differs in several fundamental respects. One. The goals shift from ambiguous wants to defined steps. 2. The goals have to be unrealistic to be effective. 3. It focuses on activities that will fill the vacuum created when work is removed. Living like a millionaire requires doing interesting things and not just owning enviable things. Now it's your turn to think big. Q&A 
questions and actions. The existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom. Viktor Frankl, Auschwitz survivor and founder of Logotherapy, Man's Search for Meaning. Life is too short to be small. Benjamin Disraeli Dreamlining will be fun, and it will be hard. The harder it is, the more you need it. To save time, I recommend using the automatic calculators and forms at www.4hourworkweek.com as you complete the following steps. 1. What would you do if there were no way you could fail if you were 10 times smarter than the rest of the world? Create two timelines, 6 months and 12 months, and list up to 5 things you dream of having, including but not limited to material wants, house, car, clothing, etc. Being be a great cook, be fluent in Chinese, etc., and doing, visiting Thailand, tracing your roots overseas, racing ostriches, etc., in that order. If you have difficulty identifying what you want in some categories, as most will, consider what you hate or fear in each and write down the opposite. Do not limit yourself, and do not concern yourself with how these things will be accomplished. For now, it's unimportant. This is an exercise in reversing repression. Be sure not to judge or fool yourself. If you really want a Ferrari, don't put down solving world hunger out of guilt. For some, the dream will be fame. For others, fortune or prestige. All people have their vices and insecurities. If something will improve your feeling of self-worth, put it down. I have a racing motorcycle, and quite apart from the fact that I love speed, it just makes me feel like a cool dude. There's nothing wrong with that. Put it all down. 2. Drawing a blank For all their bitching about what's holding them back, most people have a lot of trouble coming up with the defined dreams they're being held from. This is particularly true with the doing category. In that case, consider these questions. A. What would you do, day to day, if you had $100 million in the bank? B. What would make you most excited to wake up in the morning to another day? Don't rush. Think about it for a few minutes. If still blocked, fill in the five doing spots with the following. One place to visit. One thing to do before you die, a memory of a lifetime. One thing to do daily. One thing to do weekly. One thing you've always wanted to learn. 3. What does being entail doing? Convert each being into a doing to make it actionable. Identify an action that would characterize this state of being, or a task that would mean you had achieved it. People find it easier to brainstorm being first, but this column is just a temporary holding spot for doing actions. Here are a few examples. Great cook, make Christmas dinner without help, fluent in Chinese, have a five-minute conversation with a Chinese co-worker. 4. What are the four dreams that would change it all? Using the six-month timeline, star or otherwise highlight the four most exciting and or important dreams from all columns. Repeat the process with the 12-month timeline if desired. 5. Determine the cost of these dreams and calculate your target monthly income, TMI, for both timelines. If financeable, what is the cost per month for each of the four dreams, rent, mortgage, payment plan, installments, etc.? Start thinking of income and expense in terms of monthly cash flow, dollars in and dollars out, instead of grand totals. Things often cost much, much less than expected. For example, 
a Lamborghini Gallardo Spider fresh off the showroom floor at $260,000 can be had for $2,897.80 per month. I found my personal favorite, an Aston Martin DB9 with 1,000 miles on it, through eBay for $136,000, $2,003.10 per month. How about a round-the-world trip? Los Angeles, Tokyo, Singapore, Bangkok, Delhi or Bombay, London, Frankfurt, Los Angeles, for $1,399. For some of these costs, the tools and tricks at the end of Chapter 14 will help. Last, calculate your target monthly income, TMI, for realizing these dreamlines. This is how to do it. First, total each of the columns, A, B, and C, counting only the four selected dreams. Some of these column totals could be zero, which is fine. Next, add your total monthly expenses times 1.3. The 1.3 represents your expenses plus a 30% buffer for safety or savings. This grand total is your TMI and the target to keep in mind for the rest of the book. I like to further divide this TMI by 30 to get my TDI, target daily income. I find it easier to work with a daily goal. Online calculators on our companion site do all the work for you and make this step a cinch. Go to www.4hourworkweek.com for large printable worksheets and online calculators. Chances are that the figure is lower than expected, and it often decreases over time as you trade more and more having for once-in-a-lifetime doing. Mobility encourages this trend. Even if the total is intimidating, don't fret in the least. I have helped students get to more than $10,000 per month in extra income within three months. 6. Determine three steps for each of the four dreams in just the six-month timeline and take the first step now. I'm not a big believer in long-term planning and far-off goals. In fact, I generally set three-month and six-month dreamlines. The variables change too much and in the future distance becomes an excuse for postponing action. The objective of this exercise isn't, therefore, to outline every step from start to finish, but to define the end goal, the required vehicle to achieve them, TMI, TDI, and build momentum with critical first steps. From that point, it's a matter of freeing time and generating the TMI, which the following chapters cover. First, let's focus on those critical first steps. Define three steps for each dream that will get you closer to its actualization. Set actions, simple, well-defined actions, for now. Tomorrow, complete before 11 a.m., and the day after, again, completed before 11 a.m. Once you have three steps for each of the four goals, complete the three actions in the now column. Do it now. Each should be simple enough to do in five minutes or less. If not, ratchet it down. If it's the middle of the night and you can't call someone, do something else now, such as send an email and set the call for first thing tomorrow. If the next stage is some form of research, get in touch with someone who knows the answer instead of spending too much time in books or online, which can turn into paralysis by analysis. The best first step, the one I recommend, is finding someone who's done it and ask for advice on how to do the same. It's not hard. Other options include setting a meeting or phone call with a trainer, mentor, or salesperson to build momentum. Can you schedule a private class or a commitment that you'll feel bad about canceling? Use guilt to your advantage. Tomorrow becomes never. No matter how small the task, take the first step now.
Comfort Challenge The most important actions are never comfortable. Fortunately, it is possible to condition yourself to discomfort and overcome it. I've trained myself to propose solutions instead of ask for them, to elicit desired responses instead of react, and to be assertive without burning bridges. To have an uncommon lifestyle, you need to develop the uncommon habit of making decisions both for yourself and for others. From this chapter forward, I'll take you through progressively more uncomfortable exercises, simple and small. Some of the exercises will appear deceptively easy and even irrelevant, such as the next, until you try them. Look at it as a game and expect some butterflies and sweat. That's the whole point. For most of these exercises, the duration is two days. Mark the exercise of the day on your calendar so you don't forget, and don't attempt more than one comfort challenge at a time. Remember, there is a direct correlation between an increased sphere of comfort and getting what you want. Here we go. Learn to eye gaze. Two days. My friend Michael Ellsberg invented a singles event called eye gazing. It is similar to speed dating but different in one fundamental respect. No speaking is permitted. It involves gazing into the eyes of each partner for three minutes at a time. If you go to such an event, it becomes clear how uncomfortable most people are doing this. For the next two days, practice gazing into the eyes of others, whether people you pass on the street or conversational partners, until they break contact. Hints. 1. Focus on one eye and be sure to blink occasionally so you don't look like a psychopath or get your ass kicked. 2. In conversation, maintain eye contact when you are speaking. It's easy to do while listening. 3. Practice with people bigger or more confident than yourself. If a passerby asks you what the hell you're staring at, just smile and respond, Sorry about that. I thought you were an old friend of mine. Step 2. E is for elimination. One does not accumulate, but eliminate. It is not daily increase, but daily decrease. The height of cultivation always runs to simplicity. Bruce Lee Chapter 5 The End of Time Management Illusions and Italians Perfection is not when there is no more to add, but no more to take away. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, pioneer of international postal flight and author of Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince. It is vain to do with more what can be done with less. William of Ockham, 1300-1350, originator of Ockham's Razor. Just a few words on time management. Forget all about it. In the strictest sense, you shouldn't be trying to do more in each day, trying to fill every second with a work fidget of some type. It took me a long time to figure this out. I used to be very fond of the results-by-volume approach. Being busy is most often used as a guise for avoiding the few critically important but uncomfortable actions. The options are almost limitless for creating busyness. You could call a few hundred unqualified sales leads, reorganize your Outlook contacts, walk across the office to request documents you don't really need, or fuss with your BlackBerry for a few hours when you should be prioritizing. In fact, if you want to move up the ladder in most of corporate America, and assuming they don't really check what you were doing, let's be honest, just run around the office holding a cell phone to your head and carrying papers. Now that is one busy employee. Give them a raise. 
Unfortunately for the NR, this behavior won't get you out of the office or put you on an airplane to Brazil. Bad dog. Hit yourself with a newspaper and cut it out. After all, there is a far better option, and it will do more than simply increase your results. It will multiply them. Believe it or not, it is not only possible to accomplish more by doing less, it is mandatory. Enter the world of elimination. How you will use productivity. Now that you have defined what you want to do with your time, you have to free that time. The trick, of course, is to do so while maintaining or increasing your income. The intention of this chapter, and what you will experience if you follow the instructions, is an increase in personal productivity between 100 and 500 percent. The principles are the same for both employees and entrepreneurs, but the purpose of this increased productivity is completely different. First, the employee. The employee is increasing productivity to increase negotiating leverage for two simultaneous objectives, pay raises and a remote working arrangement. Recall that, as indicated in the first chapter of this book, the general process of joining the new rich is D-E-A-L, in that order, but that employees intent on remaining employees for now need to implement the process as D-E-L-A. The reason relates to environment. They need to liberate themselves from the office environment before they can work 10 hours a week, for example, because the expectation in that environment is that you will be in constant motion from 9 to 5. Even if you produce twice the results you had in the past, if you're working a quarter of the hours of your colleagues, there is a good chance of receiving a pink slip. Even if you work 10 hours a week and produce twice the results of people working 40, the collective request will be, Work 40 hours a week and produce eight times the results. This is an endless game and one you want to avoid, hence the need for liberation first. If you're an employee, this chapter will increase your value and make it more painful for the company to fire you than to grant raises and a remote working agreement. That is your goal. Once the latter is accomplished, you can drop hours without bureaucratic interference and use the resultant free time to fulfill dreamlines. The entrepreneur's goals are less complex, as he or she is generally the direct beneficiary of increased profit. The goal is to decrease the amount of work you perform while increasing revenue. This will set the stage for replacing yourself with automation, which in turn permits liberation. For both tracks, some definitions are in order. Being effective versus being efficient. Effectiveness is doing the things that get you closer to your goals. Efficiency is performing a given task, whether important or not, in the most economical manner possible. Being efficient without regard to effectiveness is the default mode of the universe. I would consider the best door-to-door -door salesperson efficient, that is, refined and excellent at selling door-to-door -door without wasting time, but utterly ineffective. He or she would sell more using a better vehicle, such as email or direct mail. This is also true for the person who checks email 30 times per day and develops an elaborate system of folder rules and sophisticated techniques for ensuring that each of those 30 brain farts moves as quickly as possible. I was a specialist at such professional wheel spinning. It is efficient on some perverse level, but far from effective. Here are two truisms to keep in mind. 1. Doing something unimportant well does not make it important. 2. Requiring a lot of time does not make a task important. From this moment forward, remember this. 
what you do is infinitely more important than how you do it. Efficiency is still important, but it is useless unless applied to the right things. To find the right things, we'll need to go to the garden. Pareto and his garden, 80-20, and freedom from futility. What gets measured, gets managed. Peter Drucker, management theorist, author of 31 books, recipient of Presidential Medal of Freedom. Four years ago, an economist changed my life forever. It's a shame I never had a chance to buy him a drink. My dear Vilfredo died almost 100 years ago. Vilfredo Pareto was a wily and controversial economist cum sociologist who lived from 1848 to 1923. An engineer by training, he started his varied career managing coal mines and later succeeded Leon Valra as the chair of political economy at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. His seminal work, Cours d'Economie Politique, included a then little-explored law of income distribution that would later bear his name, Pareto's Law, or the Pareto Distribution, in the last decade also popularly called the 80-20 Principle. The mathematical formula he used to demonstrate a grossly uneven but predictable distribution of wealth in society, 80% of the wealth and income was produced and possessed by 20% of the population, also applied outside of economics. Indeed, it could be found almost everywhere. 80% of Pareto's garden peas were produced by 20% of the pea pods he had planted, for example. Pareto's law can be summarized as follows. 80% of the outputs result from 20% of the inputs. Alternative ways to phrase this, depending on the context, include 80% of the consequences flow from 20% of the causes, 80% of the results come from 20% of the effort and time, 80% of company profits come from 20% of the products and customers, 80% of all stock market gains are realized by 20% of the investors and 20% of an individual portfolio. The list is infinitely long and diverse, and the ratio is often skewed even more severely. 90-10, 95-5, and 99-1 are not uncommon, but the minimum ratio to seek is 80-20. When I came across Pareto's work one late evening, I had been slaving away with 15-hour days, seven days per week, feeling completely overwhelmed and generally helpless. I would wake up before dawn to make calls to the United Kingdom, handle the United States during the normal 9-to-5 day, and then work until near midnight making calls to Japan and New Zealand. I was stuck on a runaway freight train with no brakes, shoveling coal into the furnace for lack of a better option. Faced with certain burnout or giving Pareto's ideas a trial run, I opted for the latter. The next morning I began a dissection of my business and personal life through the lenses of two questions. What 20% of sources are causing 80% of my problems and unhappiness? What 20% of sources are resulting in 80% of my desired outcomes and happiness? For the entire day I put aside everything seemingly urgent and did the most intense truth-bearing analysis possible. Applying these questions to everything from my friends to customers and advertising to relaxation activities. Don't expect to find you're doing everything right. The truth often hurts. The goal is to find your inefficiencies in order to eliminate them and to find your strengths to multiply them. In the 24 hours that followed, I made several simple but emotionally difficult decisions that literally changed my life forever and enabled the lifestyle I now enjoy. The first decision I made is an excellent example of how dramatic and fast the ROI of this analytical fat-cutting can be. 
I stopped contacting 95% of my customers and fired 2%, leaving me with the top 3% of producers to profile and duplicate. Out of more than 120 wholesale customers, a mere 5 were bringing in 95% of the revenue. I was spending 98% of my time chasing the remainder, as the aforementioned five ordered regularly without any follow-up calls, persuasion, or cajoling. In other words, I was working because I felt as though I should be doing something from 9 to 5. I didn't realize that working every hour from 9 to 5 isn't the goal. It's simply the structure most people use, whether it's necessary or not. I had a severe case of work for work. W4W, the most hated acronym in the NR vocabulary. All, and I mean 100% of my problems and complaints came from this unproductive majority, with the exception of two large customers who were simply world-class experts of the here is the fire I started, now you put it out approach to business. I put all of these unproductive customers on passive mode. If they ordered, great, let them fax in the order. If not, I would do absolutely no chasing, no phone calls, no email, nothing. That left the two larger customers to deal with, who were professional ball breakers, but contributed about 10% to the bottom line at the time. You'll always have a few of these, and it is a quandary that causes all sorts of problems, not the least of which are self-hatred and depression. Up to that point I had taken their browbeating, insults, time-consuming arguments and tirades as a cost of doing business. I realized during the 80-20 analysis that these two people were the source of nearly all my unhappiness and anger throughout the day, and it usually spilled over into my personal time, keeping me up at night with the usual, I should have said X, Y, and Z to that penis, self-flagellation. I finally concluded the obvious. The effect on my self-esteem and state of mind just wasn't worth the financial gain. I didn't need the money for any precise reason, and I had assumed I needed to take it. The customers are always right, aren't they? Part of doing business, right? Hell no. Not for the NR, anyway. I fired their asses and enjoyed every second of it. The first conversation went like this. Customer. What the bleep? I ordered two cases and they arrived two days late. Note. He had sent the order to the wrong person via the wrong medium despite repeated reminders. You guys are the most disorganized bunch of idiots I've ever worked with. I have 20 years of experience in this industry, and this is the worst. Any NR, in this case me. I will kill you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I wish. I did rehearse that a million times in my mental theater, but it actually went something more like this. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, I've been taking your insults for a while now, and it's unfortunate that it seems we won't be able to do business anymore. I'd recommend you take a good look at where this unhappiness and anger is actually coming from. In any case, I wish you well. If you would like to order product, we'll be happy to supply it, but only if you can conduct yourself without profanity and unnecessary insults. You have our fax number. All the best, and have a nice day. Click. I did this once via phone and once through email. So what happened? I lost one customer, but the other corrected course and simply faxed orders again and again and again. Problem solved. Minimum revenue lost. I was immediately ten times happier. I then identified the common characteristics of my top five customers and secured three or so similarly profiled buyers in the following week. Remember, more customers is not automatically more income. 
More customers is not the goal and often translates into 90% more housekeeping and a paltry 1% to 3% increase in income. Make no mistake, maximum income from minimal necessary effort, including minimum number of customers, is the primary goal. I duplicated my strengths, in this case my top producers, and focused on increasing the size and frequency of their orders. The end result? I went from chasing and appeasing 120 customers to simply receiving large orders from eight with absolutely no pleading phone calls or email haranguing. My monthly income increased from $30,000 to $60,000 in four weeks and my weekly hours immediately dropped from over 80 to approximately 15. Most important, I was happy with myself and felt both optimistic and liberated for the first time in over two years. In the ensuing weeks, I applied the 80-20 principle to dozens of areas, including the following. 1. Advertising. I identified the advertising that was generating 80% or more of revenue, identified the commonalities among them, and multiplied them, eliminating all the rest at the same time. My advertising costs dropped over 70% and my direct sales income nearly doubled from a monthly $15,000 to $25,000 in eight weeks. It would have doubled immediately had I been using radio, newspapers, or television instead of magazines with long lead times. 2. Online Affiliates and Partners I fired more than 250 low-yield online affiliates or put them in holding patterns to focus instead on the two affiliates who were generating 90% of the income. My management time decreased from 5 to 10 hours per week to 1 hour per month. Online partner income increased more than 50% in that same month. Slow down and remember this. Most things make no difference. Being busy is a form of laziness, lazy thinking and indiscriminate action. Being overwhelmed is often as unproductive as doing nothing and is far more unpleasant. Being selective, doing less, is the path of the productive. Focus on the important few and ignore the rest. Of course, before you can separate the wheat from the chaff and eliminate activities in a new environment, whether a new job or an entrepreneurial venture, you will need to try a lot to identify what pulls the most weight. Throw it all up on the wall and see what sticks. That's part of the process, but it should not take more than a month or two. It's easy to get caught in a flood of minutiae, and the key to not feeling rushed is remembering that lack of time is actually lack of priorities. Take time to stop and smell the roses, or in this case, to count the peapods. The 9 to 5 Illusion and Parkinson's Law I saw a bank that said 24-hour banking, but I don't have that much time. Stephen Wright, Comedian If you're an employee, spending time on nonsense is, to some extent, not your fault. There is often no incentive to use time well unless you are paid on commission. The world has agreed to shuffle papers between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., and since you're trapped in the office for that period of servitude, you are compelled to create activities to fill that time. Time is wasted because there is so much time available. It's understandable. Now that you have the new goal of negotiating a remote work arrangement instead of just collecting a paycheck, it's time to revisit the status quo and become effective. The best employees have the most leverage. For the entrepreneur, the wasteful use of time is a matter of bad habit and imitation. I am no exception. Most entrepreneurs were once employees and come from the 9-to-5 culture. Thus, they adopt the same schedule, whether or not they function at 9 a.m. or need 8 hours to generate their target income. 
This schedule is a collective social agreement and a dinosaur legacy of the results-by-volume approach. How is it possible that all the people in the world need exactly eight hours to accomplish their work? It isn't. Nine to five is arbitrary. You don't need eight hours per day to become a legitimate millionaire, let alone have the means to live like one. Eight hours per week is often excessive, but I don't expect all of you to believe me just yet. I know you probably feel as I did for a long time. There just aren't enough hours in the day. But let's consider a few things we can probably agree on. 